I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, you can be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. We are uh, so glad you're here, and it is, it is good to see all of you. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to be able to open up the Word this morning uh, to dive into this book that we have been enjoying for the past, uh, going on eight weeks now, and so again, we're so glad you're here. Um, if you've been with us uh, as we've kind of worked our way through, this, uh, through the first half of this book, um, what we've discussed about the book of Ephesians is that it's really a letter to the church about the church. It's something that is given to us. Adam referenced it last week as a circular letter. In other, in other words, this was given to the church at Ephesus, ultimately to be distributed to all of the surrounding churches, and ultimately beyond that with us in its sight. I mean, to think about the fact that God before time arranged things in such a way, ordained things in such a way, that a book that was written 2,000 years ago is as applicable to us today as it was to its original audience, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so for us as a young church, about two months old, we wanted to lay this foundation of what it is that God calls us as a church to be. I was encouraged last week, last uh, Sunday evening, um, somebody was sharing with Han and I and, and, and another group uh, of, of folks who attend Disciples Church, and one of the things they said they appreciated uh, about their time at Disciples Church is that every week, whether it's through the liturgy or the music or the teaching, it's all about Jesus, that it just keeps coming back to Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. And as Han and I were discussing that afterwards, I said, you know, that's really the highest compliment we could receive, that a church would be known for its declaration faithfully of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the centrality of Jesus Christ, to everything that we do and everything that we are and everything that we're called to be as Christians, everything that we do influenced by that gospel, impacted by that gospel, affected uh, by that gospel. And so the open invitation to you as a part of this church is if you ever see us straying from that, please talk to us. Truly as an invitation, my prayer, our prayer, for us as disciples church is that the day that we walk away from the centrality of Jesus Christ is, that the, day, is the day that the Lord would close the doors of this church. That's how centrally we want to view Jesus Christ in everything that we do and say and are because Jesus Christ alone is the hope not only of this church and not only of this community but he is ultimately the hope of the world. He's the only thing upon, upon which we can rest our hopes and our affections, the only thing that won't disappoint. And so our heart is that D.C. would be known as a place where the people are ferociously devoted to the gospel, that we would know the gospel well, that we would pursue our Savior well, 
that we would pursue and love our neighbors well, that we would faithfully proclaim the gospel to the lost, that we would interact with them in our daily lives, that we would love one another as brothers and sisters well, and that all of that would be born of our understanding of the gospel. And so our encouragement for this season, where, we're, where we are beginning and where we're trying to figure things out as a church, is would you take this season where we're still young and where we're still new to open your home, to open your calendar, to others who are part of this church? Would you get to know them? Would you begin to discuss after sermons, not so much what I say, because that may or may not be helpful, but would you discuss the text and what it means for your life? How it impacts and influences and affects the way that you live and the things that you do? And I've been so encouraged even over the course of this last week to hear about people within our congregation that are doing that. People who are inviting others to their homes or they're getting together two or three other couples and they're gonna get together for the next few weeks and get to know each other. I've been so blessed by that because that is what we need, particularly as we dive into this chapter and start talking about what does it mean to be, to, for the unity of the gospel to impact a local church. And so my invitation to you is to continue to do those things that you're doing well already. And with that, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. Happy Father's Day. By the way, I don't want to let a whole Sunday pass without mentioning something about that. Happy Father's Day to you. Um, we are thankful um, for fathers. We're thankful for the influence and the, and the impact that they make on our lives. We're thankful for uh, our, our birth fathers. We're thankful for adopted fathers. We're thankful for spiritual fathers, for those that, uh, for those that have invested in us and cared for us. And so happy Father's Day to those of you who are dads. I got a call this week, uh, or actually a text this week from uh, our babysitter. I had dropped off Leo and Harvey at their house. And uh, the babysitter texted me and she said, I thought you'd want to know this quote from Leo. And so then she quotes Leo. And whenever somebody says that, I get a little bit nervous because, you know, he's my kid and he says things and who knows how that's going to go. But, but the text was, um, my dad is so strong that I think he could lift our whole house seriously. <laughs> That was the quote Leo gave uh, to his babysitter. And she goes, I thought any dad would want to know that. And I said, you're right that I do want to know that. I said, now little does he know that he's got, uh, he's got a dad with a, with a bad back uh, and frequent, frequent pain in his back. And all I'm not actually as strong as I seem, but listen, I'm going to drink deeply at that well while I have it. Uh, those of you with older kids uh, have warned me about that. You've got to enjoy that while you can because that goes away. But... It's interesting as we interact, as Jessica and I interact with our kids, and for those of you who don't know my sons, Leo and Harvey, they're four and two, about to be five and three. And what's interesting is even if you didn't know them, even if you'd never really interacted with them, if you were able just to observe them for a while and see their exchanges and their interactions, it wouldn't take very long before you would realize that they're our kids. I mean, they look just like Jessica. They've got blonde hair, and they've got her complexion, and they've got even her facial structure. They really don't look anything like me uh, at all. But if you were to observe them for a while, all of a sudden what you'd begin to see is some of their actions, some of their mannerisms, the way that they speak, even the words that they use. You can just tell that they're our kids. You can just tell they belong to us. By observing them and, and seeing them, you'd be able to see to whom they belong. And so Leo, from the time that he was a little, little kid, was just a, he's just a sensitive boy. He can kind of read people. He can read a room. He can tell if somebody's off or he can tell if they're doing really well. And he kind of just walks in and lights up a room. He's everybody's friend. He interacts well with people. He cares about people. And he's also the kid who's always been easy to discipline. I mean, he's the kid where if he does something wrong and you just look at him just the wrong way, he just bursts into tears and starts apologizing. He's just that kid. He gets that from me, not his mom, right? Very sensitive that way. And Harvey, who does take after my wife, Harvey is much more 
independent. Is that a nice word? He's very independent. He's very even hard-headed or stubborn at times. And he's the kid where you can discipline him and then he will look you in the eye while he goes back and does the same thing that he just got in trouble for. Like he's that kid. He just doesn't seem to care what anybody thinks. But in each of our boys, what you can see are elements of who me and my wife are as people. There's a family resemblance. There are these traits that stand out in their interactions. What's fascinating about the text that we're diving into this morning is that Paul begins to describe in Ephesians chapter 4 what it really means to look like the family of Christ. He spends the first three chapters diving into this whole idea of what it is that you've been called to be and who it is that, you've, who it is that God declares you to be because of the work of his son. That, that, that God the Father so loves you and so adores you because of the work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he so set his affections on you that he has saved you from what was certain death and eternal punishment and he's brought you into his family. And the first three chapters are devoted to helping you understand that it had nothing to do with anything you could accomplish or achieve, that you were brought into the family of God. And Paul's prayer in those opening chapters, one that we looked at last week uh, as Adam worked through that text and one that we looked at right at the beginning uh, of the book in chapter one, the prayers of Paul that we see in these opening chapters are, would you please understand who you were before Christ and would you now understand who you've been made to be in Jesus Christ? And he refuses to allow us to take any credit for what God is doing. He's going to say over and over again that God's love was set on you before the world was even spun into motion, before you were even a thought in your parents' minds. God had set his love and his affection on you. That before you had the chance to do anything good or anything evil, he set his love on you. And what that means is that you are neither so good that you're able to learn or or rather, you're you're neither so good that you're able to achieve God's love, nor are you so evil that somehow you're beyond his reach. Paul calls this the mystery of God's eternal plan. That once what was once intended for just the nation of Israel has now been expanded, that we as Gentiles, as non-followers of God, have been brought into the family, adopted, receiving the same benefits not only of what was intended for the nation of Israel, but ultimately the same benefits that were attributed to Christ. And he goes so far as to say that we have become God's inheritance. That you are so valuable in the sight of God the Father that he views you as the riches in his life. I mean, think for just a moment about the way that that impacts and affects the way that we live And what's incredible is that in those first 66 verses, uh, in those first three chapters, there's only one verse in which we're given a command. We're given a command in in, in chapter 2, verse 11, where it says this, remember. Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. Remember who you were. And then by extension, the invitation, remember who you are. And now what we reach in this chapter is a shift. It's a shift in the subject matter that Paul talks about, but he's going to talk about it in exactly the same way. He's saying in chapters 1 through 3, this was God's work for you. And in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to say this is God's work through you. And he's describing what it is uh, that, that leads us to live our life in a manner that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to God. And so as we dive into chapter 4 this morning and, and in what follows, what we're going to find are a bunch of imperatives. There are a bunch of instructions, commands, instructions for what it is that we're supposed to do and how we're to live. And so let me just give this forewarning. 
Because for some of you, you've been coming each week just waiting to get to this part. All right, just tell me what to do. Just give me the list, give me the checklist, allow me to check those things off. I'm good at following rules, I'm good at following instructions, just let me do this. I've heard enough about what God has done for me, now let me do something for him, right? And you've decided to make this exchange, you've divorced the understanding of the first three chapters in lieu of the instruction of the last three. And yet there are others in this room where your temptation in this morning is going to be to say, see, this is where I get off of the Christian train. You guys talk about grace and you talk about love and you talk about God's care and then you pull this bait and switch and all of a sudden there's all these things I have to do. And what I love about Paul's writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that he does not allow us to run to either of those places. But instead what he's going to say is that you cannot divorce who you are from what you do. Those two things are interrelated, they're interconnected, they're dependent on each other. That you don't get to move from truths to activity and have those things be divorced from one another, but rather the truths that we know to be true about our God, through our God, for our best interest from our God, are the things that instruct us then in the way that we live. So the question then that we have to wrestle with, and this is the beauty of these first six verses of Ephesians 4, because this is really a connection. This is really an information point where there's this handoff between these two chapters. The question becomes this, how do you pursue godliness without it becoming a checklist? I'll just submit to you right up front, that is an incredibly difficult question to answer. We're gonna do our best through this chapter to explore that. But I want to start by reading something to you that I ran across several years ago. It's from a book called For the Love of God by D.A. Carson. And in this, in this book, Carson gives this passage, and it was something for me that was just transformational in my thinking about this topic. Here's what he said, and I want you to listen closely. He said, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. And if you're following those examples and those counterpoints of what Carson's talking about there, what he's saying is, is that there's all kinds of people that want lean, lean to uh, lean into their faith as a means to escape what it is to live as a Christian. So the question for us is how do we live an obedient life that is God-honoring without it being motivated by some sort of legalistic checklist? And the answer that Carson gives in that brief phrase is this, grace-driven effort. Now, unfortunately for all of us, Carson doesn't actually go on to explain what he means by that phrase, but I think it's a helpful phrase nonetheless. And hopefully we'll see a little bit of what that grace-driven effort looks like in the course of this morning. If you're a note taker, you're welcome. This morning I actually have points. I have three of them, in fact. I didn't find a poem to go along with that, but I do have three points for you. That's unusual, so enjoy it. It's not gonna last. But look what he says in verse one. He says, I therefore, 
a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here's what I want you to see. That verse one right there is the why behind chapters four through six. And if you miss that, what you'll end up doing is reading chapters four through six as that checklist, as that thing that makes you acceptable to God. But Paul's not gonna allow us to get away with that because what he begins uh, to give us, point one, the basis for grace-driven effort. The basis for grace-driven effort. See, this is the point where many people are tempted to forget the gospel. It's easy to view this, these next, this next portion as an addendum to the gospel, that Paul was talking about God's work, and now he's just going to talk about your work. But it's clear through the way that Paul begins that he is not adding to what he already described as the gospel. And we know that because he starts with that word, therefore. There's an old cliche, but it's a good one, so I'm going to continue to use it. Many of you have probably heard it. Some of you probably haven't. And the cliche that is actually a helpful tool when we interpret Scripture is that whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, right? How many of you have heard that, by the way? It's probably a little over half of you have heard that. It's a very good tool because it helps us when we read Scripture. Anytime you see that word, it is referencing back to something that's already been said, and it means that you need to go back and read what was said earlier. So he's saying, because of what I've already declared to be true in the first three chapters of this book, now it begins to inform the way that you live, specifically that he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now here's, here's the whole point of this. If you begin to try to do the right thing, live the right way, abide by a particular set of moralistic principles without understanding what God has already declared to be true to you, it will be a fruitless effort. Quite literally, a waste of your life and your time. And how many of us could resonate with this where you say, man, here's the sin that has been besetting me for years. It's the constant thorn in my flesh. It's the constant sin that I keep going back to. And you come to the Lord in tears one day declaring, I will never do that again. Only to find yourself a week or a month or six months or a year later coming to God and with all the sincerity that you can muster, declaring again, I will never do that can tell you in my life, you could almost set your clock by it. There's been portions of my life where there have been these sins that are so consistent in my heart. What Paul is saying is, apart from the intervening grace of God, transforming you into his image, that is the path that you will find yourself on. If you are dependent on your own strength, you will find yourself coming back to that point again and again and again. Because there are only two things that can happen when you try to solve your own problems and live life the right way through your own strength. The first one is failure. And we are well acquainted with that. We find ourselves over and over committing the same sins and the same acts and the same things that we wish were not true of us. We are living out Romans chapter 7. The things that I know I ought to do are the things that I'm not doing. The the things that I know I'm not supposed to do are the things I find myself doing. And we are living in that repetitive motion. But we never find ourselves getting to Romans chapter 8 where ultimately Paul says, thanks be to God that he's the one that intervenes with his grace, that he's the one who pursues and calls and draws to himself. And the only other option aside from failure, apart from the intervention of grace, is pride. Because the truth is, there are probably enough people in this room who are very good at doing the right thing and living a moralistic way. You're a disciplined person, you're a rule follower by nature, And the things that you set out to do are inevitably the things that you can accomplish. 
Think of the Pharisees. Paul, who says, according to the law, I was blameless. Why was he blameless? Because he was so good at following rules and yet his heart wasn't transformed in the least. And ultimately what that leads you to, again, doing the right thing but doing it apart from the power of Christ, it leads you to pride. It's something that is inherently an affront to the nature and the character of God. So one pastor said it this way. He said, imperatives, and you've heard me quote this before, imperatives divorced from indicatives become impossibilities. The commands of God divorced from who God has already declared you to be become impossible things in your life, things to which you cannot attain. Because aside from God declaring what is true about you, on what basis would you even have the ability to obey? But the beauty of who God is is that he does not leave us in a place where you are expected to do everything on your own. Nor does he leave you forgiven of your sins, but impotent to obey. So in the words of one pastor, rules never give birth to Christ-exalting obedience. But your behavior is always born of who you are. This is why Paul starts this letter in chapter one by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And why did he choose us? Or in, if for, for what did he choose us? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying you didn't enlist, you were drafted. You were called in. And those gospel obligations that we are given are always rooted in gospel declarations. So here are texts that you can go back and read later, but I do want to read through them briefly. Romans chapter 6, verses 18 through 19, and here's what it says. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Right, there's the indicative, God declaring who you are now in him. Therefore, because of those things, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Who you are leads to what you do. In this case, because you have been brought into the family of God, because you have been given Christ's righteousness, you now present yourself before righteousness, living a life that is honorable to God. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 24 say it this way. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's who you are. The passions and desires that once marked who you were as a human being were, were in this case figuratively nailed to the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. They are dead to you and you to them. Therefore, verse 24, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now what's he saying? What he's saying is if you miss that connection, you are going to be, you are going to be living a life that is out of line with who God has declared you to be. And Paul says, live out of the new life that you've been given. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because it sounds like he just defines something by itself. Walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here's what that means. When he uses that word worthy, he's not talking about the idea that you have somehow earned that position, as we've talked about at length. But what he's saying is that the way you live is coordinated with what you know to be true. And the question I would ask you, and ultimately this is the question that we're being asked by the text, is, is your faith integrated with the way that you live? 
the things that you would claim to be true about your God, about your Savior, about the Spirit that indwells you if you know Christ? Are they consistent with the manner in which you're living? Because what we know from chapters one through three is that what makes you a Christian is not your works, but what God has declared, to you, declared about you. But what Paul's saying here is that you are to live in a way that lines up with that calling. So everything that follows, everything that comes in the rest of the book uh, regarding speech and sex and marriage and parenting and alcohol and all the rest of it, it is all just talking about the integration of your faith into your life. How are these things interrelated? How are these things connected to your faith? And what Paul's saying is, is that it's the grace of God that enables you to walk worthy. And he gives us a few examples of what that is in the next verse. So we've seen the, the basis of grace-driven effort. And now number two, we see the results of grace-driven effort. So look at verse two. He says, walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. What he's saying is that without this work of regeneration, without this new heart that's been given to you by the Holy Spirit, there can be no grace-driven effort. Without God reviving you from death to life, without him imparting the life of his resurrection into your own heart, the best you will do is replacing an old sin with a new sin. So let me illustrate that this way. Apart from Christ reforming you into something new and giving you life that you didn't have, all you're going to be able to do at best is exchange one sin for another. So if your sin right now is, if your sin is fear, I don't mean that you scare easily, nor am I talking about some sort of clinical anxiety. That's a different conversation entirely. But what I'm talking about is if your life is so gripped by fear, that the decisions that you make and the things that you do and the way that you live and the way that you pray and the way that you act as a believer, if all of those things are formed by fear and your heart hasn't been transformed or you're not understanding the grace that you've been given, the best that you will be able to do is exchange that fear for control. So I'm going to make sure that I own my circumstances and that I can control everything and everyone around me and I'm going to make sure that we do these things and avoid these things and as much as I can, I'm going to put an iron fist around my life so that I am certain that nothing will ever cross my path that I can't control. Maybe, you're, maybe your sin is lust and you recognize the breakdown, the disintegration of who you are because you find yourself being given over to a lustful mind. And so your answer is not a full and complete dependence on the grace and the mercy and the love and the presence of Christ. It's not dependent on the idea that Jesus, as a man, experienced every temptation such as we have yet without sin, and therefore you are dependent on him throwing yourself before his grace. But instead you say, I'm going to white knuckle my way through life. I'm going to control my circumstances. I'm going to do the right thing and I will never be guilty of this again. You've just exchanged, you've just exchanged lust for self-righteousness. And no matter which sin works out, wins out in your life, idolatry is still reigning. But the beauty of the grace-driven effort that Paul is talking about here was summed up well by a man, a pastor named Stuart Briscoe, who said this. 
He said, I am no longer free to live in what was necessary for him to die for. I'm no longer free to live in what was necessary for him to die for. In other words, when Christ went to the cross and when your passions and desires were nailed to his body on the tree, at that moment what he's saying is, is you now belong to me. And you are no longer free to live in the things that required Christ to die. It's the idea that as a believer, the reason that we, do, we desire not to sin is because we no longer want to contribute to the very thing that had to crucify Christ. And what that creates in us, Paul is going to say, is humility. See, humility is the dependent response of the Christian to the divine grace of Jesus. Because only when you see your need for Jesus are you able to look at someone else the way that he does. See, when you are humbly dependent on Christ because you realize that that you desperately need him, it's only in that moment that you're able to begin to interact with other people, as Paul describes, in humility. Where you're able to see people the way that God would view them. That they have inherent value. That they were created in the Imago Dei, the very image of God. And he says, not only is your life going to begin to be marked by humility, but it's going to be marked by gentleness, or your translation may, uh, may say instead, meekness. It's that classic Christian definition, which is the idea of strength under control. And understand that when this word gentleness is used in your Bible, this is not something when this was originally written that would have been understood to be a good thing. Because in Greco-Roman culture, what set you apart as an individual, what made you who you were as part of the broader culture, what made you a man, what made you a woman, what made you a relevant member of society was strength that was enforced. It was you manipulating your circumstances. It was you asserting your strength. And the idea of meekness or gentleness was ascribed to slaves This wasn't something that any self-respecting person would define themselves as. This was something that was reserved for the lowest of the low. And yet we know that Jesus Christ is described by his meekness, by his gentleness, his interactions. And you think about his interactions with people. You think about his interactions with prostitutes and women of the city. You think about his interactions with children. You think about his interactions with Zacchaeus, this man by, for whom by any standard, Jesus should have reacted with harshness towards. And the question you need to ask yourself is how do you interact with people? Are you drawn to intimidation? Are you drawn to power? Are you drawn to control? Are you drawn to assert yourself? Or maybe it's a lack of gentleness demonstrated in a whole different way. Maybe your problem is one of comparison. You see other people who have things you don't have, who look a way that you don't look, who have a job that you wish you had. And so you begin to slander them and talk poorly about them and assign all sorts of ill motives to them because they have something you don't have. What are you doing ultimately? It's an exercise of manipulation. It's the opposite of gentleness. And finally, he says, patience. You could define patience a host of ways, but here's the one that I'll use for the sake of this context. Patience is taking the long view. It's applying the same attitude towards others that Christ takes towards me. 
And that's really hard to do because I'm really good at being patient with myself. I mean, I am unduly patient with myself. I am overflowing with patience towards me. I'll give myself all kinds of time to figure things out and to treat myself well. And yet when that standard is applied outward, I have almost none. Well, what's happening in my heart at that moment? There's a disintegration of my faith. I somehow am viewing myself as more important than everybody else, that, my, that I have more inherent value than anybody else, that I have more worth, that I'm a better person. And nothing brings out your impatience like community and relationships. Because when you interact with people at work and they don't do things the way that you would do them, all of a sudden you find yourself far less patient. And when your spouse or your kids do something that you wish they wouldn't do because ultimately it inconveniences you and makes life a little bit harder, you realize your own impatience. But he says all of these things are working together towards one thing and that is that we are bearing with one another in love. That there is a depth of sacrificial love within the Christian community towards one another. That the good news, in the words of one author, the good news of God's grace beautifies how we treat one another. It beautifies it. It's the idea that the horizontal relationships that we have reveal the vertical relationship that we have that how we treat one another reveals what we really believe about God. And it's the reason why what Paul is gonna say later regarding sexual relationships and marriage and the way that you interact with kids and the way that you interact with employers and the way that you interact within the context of the church and the way that you speak, it's the reason that all of those things are so important to Paul. Not because doing those things make you right before God, but because if you are living your life in a way that is ignorant of who God is and who God has declared you to be and ignorant of the grace that he has given you in, in an exponential, amazing way, then inherently it is going to begin to affect every other relationship you have. Does what you say you believe about God impact the way that you actually act? And by the way, not just the way that you interact with people that you like, but also people that you can't stand. I mean, who are the people where when you think of their name or you see their face, there's just something in you that kind of roils up? Who are the people that you are just waiting to frustrate you? because they don't know what they're doing. And what does it look like to have a life that is so informed by the gospel that even your interactions with them begins to be transformed? So Paul's point here is not that, this, not that there is gonna be this magical, magical change in your life where all of a sudden, instantaneously, your relationships are transformed overnight. But here's what he's saying. To the, to the degree that you continue to grow in understanding the grace of the gospel, your relationships will begin to be marked with this sort of loving humility. And in a very real sense, humility and gentleness and your love towards others and your patience in your interactions serve as a litmus test. If not to your very understanding of the gospel, certainly to its impact and its effect on your life. So is your life marked by these things? And finally, he leads us to a third question. To what are all these grace-driven changes leading? Look at verse three. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. 
Now notice what he says here. He doesn't say go find unity. He doesn't say give up everything you believe in order to make unity. He doesn't say unity at all costs before anything else. What he says is maintain the unity of the spirit. This is a unity that is given. There is something spiritual about this. There is something that is inherently a gift from God about this sort of, of unity. And what he says is you are to maintain the unity that you already possess. He, can, he compares the, the church to a physical body. And he says, if you look at your own body, you don't have a bunch of disparate pieces that have been sewn together in some sort of Frankenstein manner to create one individual being. What you have is something that was birthed out. That one part of your body grows out of the other. That there's a holistic way to the way that we view the body. And he says in the very same sense, that's how we are to view the church. Not just locally, but universally. Not meaning that all churches and all people agree on all things, but that there is an underlying agreement about who Jesus Christ is, about who God is, about what his intentions are, about his plan to rescue humanity, about all of these things that we can agree as people and we are to maintain a unity. And he refers to it as a bond of peace. He's saying you've been shackled, bound together. And just think about Think about how visceral of a description that is for Paul as he writes this, probably chained to other prisoners. He's writing it from prison and he's trying to think of a way to illustrate this and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he looks at the guy next to him who is literally chained to his arms and he says, it's like there's a bond of peace between you. You've been brought together, connected that this unity is something supernatural. It's not something you can attain. It's only something you can keep. It's a gift. And notice as well that this is not a unity based on, on the lowest common denominator of belief where doctrine is insignificant and love is all that matters or vice versa. But notice what he says. He's saying the doctrines are, are those things around which we are to have unity and we're to express them in love. And that leads us to the third and final point, the hope of grace-driven effort. The hope of grace-driven effort. What is it that empowers everything we've been talking about this morning? And look at verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all, and in all. And he's saying, look, there's a reason you're able to be one body in Jesus. The reason is that the reason that you have one hope in your calling and there's a hope in the Lord, a faith in the Lord, a baptism in the Lord. You have one God who is over all and through all and in all. And how does all of that cause you to be able to walk the Christian life? How does it enable you to begin to put others before yourselves and to have this bond of peace, this unity, this patience, this gentleness, this love? Because that very same one God made himself of no reputation and put us before him. That Jesus Christ, who is God, gave up everything. So when I forget who I am in Christ, when I forget that I'm loved and forgiven and accepted, in that moment I have to fight for my agenda and my reputation. I have to take offense when I'm mistreated rather than forgiving. I have to prove my worth 
rather than finding it in the finished work of Jesus. And I have to do all of that at the expense of other people. I'll confess to you that even through the course of this week, this is a text that just blew me up. Because I'm looking at my own heart and my own life. And I'm going, man, is this always true of me? How often do we give in to the temptation to self-defense, to protect our own ego, to protect our own name, to protect what other people think of us? And in that moment, what we have done, and certainly what I have done, is I have forgotten who God has called me to be. That I am forgiven and loved and accepted. And when I understand the forgiveness and the love and the acceptance that God has poured out on me, it enables me then to live in a place where I don't have to defend myself, where I don't have to fight for myself, where I can begin to pour myself out for others. And the temptation to give in is a temptation to try to be marked and identified by something other than being a true son or daughter of God. It's a temptation to live as one whose worth and value is wrapped up in who you are or in who you perceive yourself to be, rather. And so whenever resentment or bitterness bubbles up to the surface in my life, it's a sign that I am failing to believe that everything I need, I already possess in Christ. It's a warning sign on my soul. It's God holding up his hand and telling me to stop because I have forgotten what he's declared to be true and therefore I'm not living out of that truth. So what would it look like for us? What would it look like for a body to be knit together in this place that is so marked by the gospel and so marked by unity and patience and sacrificial love that these things began to be known of us? not so that people can think we're great or that this church is great, but that through this church, God might even deign to draw people to himself. How incredible would it be for someone to look at the interactions of the people who call this church home and say, because of what they see, I want what those people have. That's the kind of love that I long to live in. Because the world can only present a fake. It can only present a copy. It has an image of a near of love, but underneath it is driven by all sorts of ego and reputation and causes and agendas that are ultimately at war with one another. But to have this sort of love, it's truly miraculous and something worth fighting for as believers. But since we're accepted, we can rest secure as his child. That you have a dad who holds the whole world in his hand. Seriously. Our prayer is that through the Holy Spirit enablement, we would be people who are marked by grace-driven effort. provided by Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, 
and willing to pour out our lives for one another and the people in the places that God has put us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the truth and the reminder of this text. I thank you for the beautiful transition of your word. God, that you haven't just called us to know about who we are, but then that you've given us the power through the Holy Spirit and through the power of your grace to begin to live out of that new identity. God, would we be a people who are so secure in who we are in your sight that we are free to live in this world as those who may be criticized or ridiculed and still rest easy at night in the hands of our Father. So God, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you ultimately for what you do. And it's in your most precious name that we pray. Amen.